Welcome to the Sales Career Podcast. This is your host, Kevin Hopp. Whether you're an executive, sales leader, or just getting your career in sales started, I'm here to help you read between the lines and hear the real stories that you can't get from a resume or from a LinkedIn profile, all designed to help you shape your own sales career. Let's dive right into today's episode and see what we can learn. Welcome, everybody, to the Sales Career Podcast. Our guest today, Ronen Passar. Hello, hello. Current head of growth at Stylo. Can't wait to hear about that. He's also a uh, two-time LinkedIn sales star. Want to hear about how he's used LinkedIn and gotten so popular there. But uh, either way, he's in San Diego. He's a former member, or uh, uh, also a member of Pavilion with me. Everybody welcome the great and powerful, Ronen. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Great to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So this is the Sales Career Podcast. I think it's safe to say that you're a sales guy. Uh, it's a good question, but I, I think it's safe to say. Okay, cool. So talk to me a little bit about uh, early on in your career. How did you get into sales and did you always think you were going to be in sales? or Sales happened by accident, but the path from there was intentional. Um, it actually started, I, I, right out of college, went into property management. So a career path that was kind of in front of me and I was super unintentional about what I was doing coming out of college. I realized uh, pretty quickly in the property management world that life was just a giant headache and it wasn't for me. So I set my sights on getting into tech and not being an engineer. The only thing I could really do was cold calling and selling. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to put some people in the network to work. Uh, there was an opening at a company called Smartling, an awesome uh, localization software. I came on in, interviewed, and was part of their first SDR team back in 2015. There you go. It's funny. It's same same sort of timeline as when I got into SDR work, 2015. What a good year. Yeah. Uh, I think if... Uh, all the sellers out there can remember 2015, local presence was a big deal. That's right. Local presence dialing. LinkedIn Sales Navigator was in its influence or infancy, I should say. Like it was very kind of new. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of tools were you leveraging back then? And then, you know, you mentioned cold calling. Has that always been like a strength of yours? Oh, absolutely not. No, I was, I was like world class trash. Like just so bad at it when I started. Uh, we were basically running on HubSpot and something called yes mail yesware at the time which was like an early competitor to outreach and sales loft when they were all just cadencing tools all just email tools they've added a lot of you know yeah. features since then oh i've used yesware yeah <laughs> so you've been there oh dude I've, there's there's very few cadencing email tools i haven't touched right, <laughs> That's right. yeah and we had a headset and a uh, manual dialer so i was there like this every day just headset on dialing with my fingers you know i, I got to the part where i didn't have to look at it because you get so comfortable with actually punching in the numbers and you just wait on like dial trees admins all day um it was it was the early days a lot of throwing shit at the wall to see what would stick yeah and we learned a lot of lessons in those early days. Yeah, what what I thought was really interesting, I don't know what your experience like was specifically, but in 2015 when I was in SDR, my uh my we didn't have a VP of sales, which is a problem, right? Uh but we didn't have a VP of sales and the guy that was in enterprise sales that kind of looked over the SDR team, he said things like 
this is a really cool experiment. Like I'm really excited about the fact that we were able to make this happen. Totally. And I was thinking to myself, like, are we the first people to ever do sales development? <laughs> is this is this like a like? I, I, it was very like, oh my god, are we like trailblazers? So I, I started to lean into it. And I looked into it. I'm like, wow, you know, predictable revenue was was written way before that. So it's interesting. Yeah. So I guess what the point I'm trying to get to here is like, you didn't get high quality SDR training, did you? At first, no. I mean, it was, hey, this kind of worked for me, which was uh, spamming, you know, email blasting people yeah. with a little bit of personalization, which today is not really personalization anymore. And um, and then cold calling. That was basically it. There wasn't a whole lot of social uh, SDRing quite yet. There was no video really. Although we, we did start to experiment with it a little bit, but the technology didn't make it easy quite yeah. yet. It was mostly just using like, you know, whatever was on your laptop already. Um, but we did get better. And I also, it's funny you mentioned trailblazing because I kind of felt the same way. I was like, is anyone else doing this? And at the time, predictable re- revenue was the Bible. That was the thing that like in my first week, they were like, read this book. Yeah. And I thought Aaron Ross made some great points. I didn't quite at the time get what he was saying until later on when I realized oh there was a way before this uh, that was very much so you're your own SDR your own sales rep and you're doing it all in one yeah it's it's kind of interesting how uh you know the I think the SDR world has blown up right now it's like super common everyone wants to be an SDR and there's all these companies like Aspireship and Flock J and Others that are that are helping people become SDRs from non-traditional careers. For sure. And you know, when I was an SDR, it was like, geez, is this a, <laughs> is this a real job? Am I making this up? And now it's like everyone wants to be an SDR. I I'm actually a really big fan of those programs. I've hired in past roles uh, SDRs out of some of those boot camps, the SDR boot camps. They're really well trained on the basics, and it also shows if you're looking for the intangible of the motivation in an SDR, someone who really wants to be in the role and really wants to learn and grow, someone who puts themselves through that program or process is clearly serious. Um, I haven't had a bad experience yet hiring someone who's gone through any of the Aspireship or FlockJ. There's a few others out there as well that are Mm -hmm. really good. But it's interesting to see the evolution of SDR take off. You've got a whole bunch of people who are now uh, LinkedIn influencers that talk about video or talk about social only. Shout out to actually Evan Patterson, who's someone who brought me on to the idea of like how to properly do social SDRing. Yeah. It's an incredible thing to see it in motion because it works. But there are so many niche uh, approaches to SDRing today. And then you've got your whole movement of like no SDRs, you know, get rid of the SDRs, which is, I don't think that's going to really hold. I mean, who knows? We'll see. I'm actually a sneak preview for everyone out there. I'm going to be talking to Nelson Gilead. Oh, there we go. Who's the guy. He's the death to the SDR guy. So he's going to be on the pod in a few weeks here. Um, He's a great guy, but I gave him a hard time today on something he wrote. (laughs) Well, he's just, you know, I, I, I appreciate that he's out there. I appreciate anyone that goes out there and goes all the way to the left lane. So the concept of left lane is like also something that I try to talk when I talk to founders about like what SDRs should be like and what makes a good outbound salesperson a left laner. Like if you look at the highway, five lanes, 
who's going the fastest and getting somewhere. Five lanes in California. Mind you, <laughs> East Coast, when you're driving, you don't have five lanes. Uh, yeah, I guess. I'm <laughs> so used like to five lanes. It's like a true <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, I, I learned to drive on the 405. So go. shout out to Los Angeles, man. That's like, some points, it's like eight, eight lanes. And I was learning how to drive in that. It was nuts. But you want someone in the left lane, meaning someone who's uh, very outgoing, hmm. very kind of, you know, going to say what they're going to say. And Nelson has that same spirit. And he's just pushing a totally different agenda. Instead of like outbound, outbound, outbound. He's like, outbound's dead. But he's doing it in an SDR. Like he's got that vigor, outbound vigor to him. So that's what I think is really interesting. Um, I too don't think, you know, in my consultancy, I teach outbound sales and I teach how to build an SDR mm-hmm. model that works, right? So I obviously don't think it's going away. I do think it, it, it can evolve. And you touched on something there, which is like social selling. So when did you start to like actually make money off of social selling? Early on? So it's funny you mentioned that because most recently, even with Stylo, um, our very, one of our earliest customers, we met them with this approach, um, which was reaching out to someone who had engaged with a micro-influencer within a niche that we were trying to target as our persona. So for example, if you're selling to salespeople and uh, Kevin here has an awesome following and you post something that gets 250 likes on it and 50 comments, if I'm an SDR for a company selling a sales product, I'm going to look through who engaged with your content. And then if I find someone as I'm looking through with the title that I like, I'll message them a question to start a conversation with my connect request. And the question will be something like, you know, Kevin talked about uh, the death of SDRs isn't really happening. I don't know. It seems like CAC is pretty high. What What's your thoughts on it? You'd be shocked at the reply rate, the openness that people have willing to talk about their domain expertise. And it starts a back and forth. And depending on how that goes, you can then, if it goes well, at the end of it, pivot it appropriately into, hey, you know, it's actually something we're working on, which is trying to improve the cost of acquisition for outbound SDRs. Any chance you're interested in taking a look at what we're building here? That very approach uh, got us our first our first customer at Stylo a while back, which was really exciting. And so it, it paid for itself multiple times over. I love it. I love that. Uh, so we, what you're hinting at there is that you start a genuine conversation with someone that doesn't start with a, an advertisement or a pitch. Yeah. yeah. It's not really even a call to action. The call to action is, hey, can we have a conversation? You know, so many people talk about cutting through the noise. The way to cut through the noise is don't be a part of the noise. The noise is the spammy, really icky, cringy type of stuff that's the first LinkedIn message. You've probably gotten this a bunch of times. First LinkedIn message has a link to book a time with that person. Love those. That's like an, that's an instant. I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to delete this message and disconnect, like remove our connection because usually that person has just sent me using a LinkedIn automation tool and another 10,000 people the same message. Um, if it works, great, but you're gonna burn a lot of your leads that way or you're gonna get uh, people to associate you very negatively. Starting a conversation is like, think about when you walk into a bar. If you're, if you're trying to go meet someone, uh, even just a friend, not necessarily to date, but you're gonna go, you just wanna meet the locals. You move to a new place, you're trying to figure out who's who. You go into a, a local bar and you don't just go, hey, how's it going? Here's my calendar link. Do you want to meet with me? It's like, 
know. It's like, hey, what's up? How are you? What are you working on? If you know something about the person, you can ask them a question about what they're doing and you'll be surprised. People love opening up about their domain expertise. That's right. Interesting. So um, back to back to kind of your career arc here. Yeah. At a certain point here, you were working for a company that raised a lot of venture capital. It was moving pretty fast totally. and you were in charge of a lot of people. That's really, really interesting to me. And I'd love to hear kind of how did you how did you take what you were learning when you were at SDR and apply it to management For at sure. a high growth startup? So I get uh, two questions asked a lot um, to the point where some people will reach out to me on LinkedIn and just say, "Hey, I have a few choices in front of me. Uh, this just happened last week. Can you help me think through my options?" Um, and I'm always happy to talk to anyone about career stuff because I've had people that I was fortunate enough to help me through those moments too. Um, the the question I get asked so often is one. How do I make the jump from an SDR to a, a leader? So from an individual contributor to a leader. And the second question I get asked a lot is, do I need to hold a bag? Do I need to have a quota as a sales rep to be a sales leader? And so people who look at the trajectory I was on will say, you never were a account executive. You never held a quota directly, but you managed a team of sellers. Is that, how did you do that? Do I need to do that? So to the first point, how do you make the leap into leadership? There's the parts you control and the parts you don't control. The parts you don't control are how well the market is responding to your product and your company's growing. If it's growing really quickly, chances are you will increase your likelihood of there being a need for leadership. Uh, the other things you don't control is choices that leadership might make that impact you. So for example, they decide to start outsourcing all of their SDR efforts and you want to be an SDR leader. Mm -hmm. That's not going to go really well. But what you do control is showing a propensity for the thing you want to do. Um, in my very first job in the property management role, my, my boss told me, he said, you know, success is when you're prepared for the opportunity that you want. So as long as you're prepared for that thing, when that thing comes around, that's when you're successful. So if you're trying to make the jump into leadership, ask yourself, what can I do to start to demonstrate that I am a leader? One great way to do that is take other people under your wing. If you have figured something out, you do something well, you're in the top three in your company for cold calling conversion or email conversion or social selling, can you teach others how to do it? Can you document a process? Can you hold uh, training or practice sessions? That's one really good way to do it. Another great way is just to raise your hand and say, hey, uh, I'd really love to explore leadership further. One thing I thought of doing was, and then talk about something that you're really good at. So it could be training, but doing it a little bit more formally with someone who might be responsible for making that decision. That's exactly what I was doing at uh, Smartling when the opportunity came along, my manager was moving on, the leadership looked at who was internally at the company, on the team, and externally, and, and decided, why don't we give two people internally a shot? They promoted me and someone else to team lead role, and we were managing at the time the team of about uh, 10 folks. The other guy didn't really work out so well, and for me, it became a full-time thing. So I went back at the time to uh, my head of marketing and said, Listen, I hardly have time to do my own outbound work. Yeah. Uh, so my numbers are going to suffer. It, it's time to either make this a full-time thing or I'll go back to doing the SDR gig. Here's why I think it's better choice. 
to make me a full-time manager. And that's how I made that first jump. I love it. So it wasn't, you just applied cold to a management job and you walked in ready to roll. You had your 30, 60, 90 plan. You had figured out the quotas. You'd figured out it wasn't like that. You didn't just show up completely prepared. I was, it was an internal promotion and I was yeah. prepared in the sense of like, look, I'm already doing the job 80% yeah. of it anyway. Let's make it official. And the best way to get a job is to do the job that you want at an early stage startup where there's a lot of growth. And that was also happening. There was a good amount of growth at that time with the company. So as they were growing, they had big plans for the SDR team as well. They wanted to grow it eventually to 16 people, um, which is what happened after I took, took over. So they had big plans for it. There was no leader. He was about to leave. And um, I had already been doing a lot of the things. So it was kind of a no-brainer choice for them. And if I'm thinking about it completely objectively, they could pay me a little bit less and it wouldn't be a huge risk to have me take on the role. Because if it didn't go well in three months, they could go to the market and go find someone. Yeah. And so there wasn't a lot of risk to the company, which is the other big thing to try to do. De-risk the situation as much as possible. You know, talk about, hey, if it doesn't work, you can go hire someone or continue to interview while I'm doing it, but I'm so confident I'll do well and you'll be happy with the results that in about a month, you won't even be thinking about looking for someone else. So kind of betting on yourself. Exactly, yeah. Ooh, big fan of betting <laughs> on yourself. That's a that's a really good theme. Um, so what, what I think is really important to take away from that story, and correct me if I'm wrong, is some people think that, I've heard this from a lot of people, right? Because I've been an SDR leader, I've had VP titles at very small companies, um, people think like, man, how'd you get that big job? And uh, the answer is step by step. I didn't show up to any of these jobs with everything ready to rock. And neither did you, right? Um, you just started by doing and then slowly kept progressing. Uh, but what does seem very consistent from your stories is moving forward. Like you're not like sitting in one spot saying, well, I'm going to do this job for two years and then I'm going to do this. You know, What do you think about people that say that, well, I've only done this job for a year, year and a half. Like, is there, is there, are there timelines? Are timelines really important? What's the famous Winston Churchill saying about planning? You know, you'll fail. I'm going to butcher it, but. <laughs> if, hey, Jamie, pull that one up for us, won't you? <laughs> yeah, right. Jamie. Yeah, Joe Rogan. We'd, we'd have it pulled up on our screen right here. This is the JRE pod, but. That's right. Something like if you uh, fail to plan, failure is imminent but a plan doesn't guarantee success. So it's like, you know, you can plan as much as you want. Yeah. And that's good to a point. But as we all know, I mean, hey, look at COVID, how many plans have changed unpredictably. You still need a plan. Timelines are great for personal milestones and to keep yourself in check with what you want to do. But it's hard to predict what will happen at a company. If you experience huge growth all of a sudden, there's going to be more need. If the opposite happens, things might suddenly start to get cut. And less opportunities will present themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I wonder how many people I'm going to talk to doing this podcast that say that their career went according to plan. <laughs> My plan was to be in med school and to be a pediatrician. No that was way. college. And after a year of pre-med and spending eight hours a day, six days a week in the library studying, I still got a C in pre-med bio. And I thought if I'm putting this much effort into something and still can't get an A or even a, a high you know, B, forget about it. Like it's clearly not right. Pivot into psychology and business. And that's when I was like, oh, this is really cool. I like people. And yeah. That's, 
that's kind of also how I got back into sales. Yeah. Later. That's awesome. Yeah. Psychology majors. We, we end up in sales a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I like to say with my psychology degree, I'm, I'm qualified to do anything and nothing all at once. Exactly. Right. I'm not officially qualified to do really anything, but I'm not like disqualified from doing kind of anything. So it fits really nicely into sales. For sure. Um, interesting. So, so you, you went from, uh, from, from becoming that SDR leader, then you went to another company where you're managing AEs. Right. Yeah, so uh, from Smartling, I spent almost uh, three years there, and by the time I left, the team was 16 um, SDRs with three team leads who I was managing, so we kind of had a pod situation with um, some hierarchy in place. And then I had a really incredible opportunity to team up with Security Scorecard. They had just done a Series B when I arrived. Actually, they hadn't even finished it yet. And they had a team of five. Um awesome five like to this day i'm i'm still friends with all of them in different capacities um but it was kind of a team of like five misfits with no leader who were reporting into the vp of sales and the vp of sales was like the sales team is growing i can't keep up with the sdrs and i need help in short order we grew that team today it's at 25 and the current director of the team is someone who i was fortunate enough to convince to come join us as an sdr help you know I learned a ton from him and taught him everything I knew, and he eventually took over after I left. Um, but there was a lot of learning. One of the coolest things we did there was figuring out the auto dialers, uh, and so that was probably one of my most proud accomplishments. And it's not for everyone. I'll definitely preface it by saying that. But we figured out we'd used um, Connect and Sell, uh, Concert used to be called Connect Leader, and even Orum. So the three big players in that space, mm-hmm. used all three of them. And the return on that investment, the return on the time, the return on each SDR using it was unbelievable once we figured out how to get the proper data to flow in there and kind of work through the systems. It took a little bit of time. We figured that out um, about two, three months before COVID hit. 2019 is when we really started seeing results. At the beginning of the pandemic, it just exploded everyone was home and everyone was picking up their phones and so suddenly we just saw a huge spike in productivity and results uh when that happened so it was a little bit of unplanned fortunate circumstance with being able to be prepared again here's being prepared for an opportunity that we never saw coming Mm -hmm. that came around and there was a huge amount of success as a result wow interesting um, it's also an important kind of lesson for people to learn out there. It's not like Ronan saw the first tool that he got a, you know, let's say someone called you out of the blue and you're like, Hey, this tool, this is it. <laughs> you did a, it sounds like he did a lot of diligence there and, oh, yeah. and testing the tools against each other. And full you find off. out full bake off, man. When you do full bake offs of tools, it, you know, first off, I think you were fortunate, right? I think a lot of people would say you were fortunate that you had a, organization and leadership that allowed you to do that um, to convince them but yeah. they one of the things i was fortunate enough um and this is another tip i would give to anyone is within your first like one to four weeks at a company you need to make that impression on everyone around you as the kind of person you want to be and i was sure i wanted to be seen as the person who had some level of innovative ability where i can take a process see what's working, see what's not working, and start experimenting to find the other growth levers. 
I was fortunate enough to at least get somewhat <laughs> of uh, like credibility in that realm. So when I approached my CRO, and eventually I had to go through the CFO and CEO to get this all approved because it wasn't cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had the data to back it. I had already trialed all three of them. Uh, and, the, and all three companies did a great job trying to sell it and even setting it up. But that was key, right? So knowing what I was trying to do, what data points we were trying to measure, and then being able to collect all of it in very controlled um, situations where it was a trial, I could then end that and say, let's compare the tools. Let's compare it to the current process too. And what's going to be the projected best outcome? Knowing what we were trying to do, we were able to negotiate uh, the terms that we wanted and it ended up working out pretty well. Um, one thing I would say about that though, is there was definitely a bit of a gamble taken by our CEO and CFO at the time, because it wasn't a small investment I was asking for. Uh-huh. Um, they were certainly made it really clear that, Hey, if this doesn't work, we're going to pull the plug on it. So the, my back was up against the wall and also having to deliver the results, but they were there. I love it. I love it. Um, and what a, what an important lesson to learn on how to get something across the line, right? Something that like you, you, you thought of, you, you believed in, but at the same time, businesses don't normally put a lot of budget towards, Hey, just trust me on this. Mm-hmm. You know, Ronan's new in the seat and he's trying to make a, an impact says, Hey, let's buy this tool. It costs $80,000. doesn't really happen that way. Right. So doing a big off is a great way to do that. Um, uh, a note on auto dialers, right? You say they're they're probably not for everybody. The you know one of the things I, I think is important is if you have a large total addressable market, mm. is that the most key thing to get a to, to using an auto dialer? For sure, and I'll even further validate that it's not just the total addressable market with your ICP, but also your persona. Like if you have a, if you only have one ideal persona at every company, you have to then have a different kind of data um, strategy. But as long as you've got a big enough TAM to play in and uh, or total workable addressable market, then you're good to go. I would never recommend, even with a big addressable market, anyone start off with something like this if they also don't have the right support in place. The amount of sales operations and revenue ops or marketing ops that's needed to help stand something like this up, or in our case, having a really talented team lead <laughs> and a and a RevOps person who's pretty solid. Um, there's good data that has to come in because the quality of your phone data is going to dictate how well the results happen. What happens as things get dispositioned and so on and so forth. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on it. Yeah, yeah. You know how it goes. Oh, you, if you're it talking my language. Well, yeah. you really can't, um, you won't see success. On the flip side, it allows for even more innovation. So one thing we started right. doing is we would have dispositions trigger an automatic sequence for the prospect. So if they told us they're with competitor X, they would go in competitor X sequence. The minute the SDR clicked that and moved on to the next call, that person's already getting an email. Hey, thanks so much for connecting. I know you mentioned you're with competitor X. Uh, Just for your record, here are some of the things we hear as to why people might consider switching. Um, Just for you to keep in your back of your pocket. Would it be all right if I circled back with you in two or three months? And, And little things like that, um, keep your prospects warm at scale. Yeah, allow you to get a lot more traction. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's uh, it kicks off a whole other kind of thing here that I want to talk <laughs> about, which is the idea of uh, technology, right? So in your career, as you've gone along, it seems like you really leaned into technology, from what I can hear. 
right? For like sure. you're doing this bake off, you're using sequencing, really, you know, that's that's like pretty advanced stuff to get deep in the weeds with the triggers and stuff. And you're not a sales operations guy, you were a sales leader, a people leader, right? Yeah. So ha- t- talk to me a little bit about like how you, it sounds like you kind of really leverage technology. How did you figure out the technology was a key piece of the pie for you? It's funny. I got into tech in the first place because I'm attracted to it. The being at the forefront of the innovation curve in terms of being a con- consumer of B2B tech um, was always just intriguing and cool. But I think the modern day SDR leader, and even I would go as far as to say the modern day uh, VP of sales or director of a sales team has to be at least competent in understanding a sales engagement platform, data platforms, a CRM. If you can't run your own report in Salesforce or HubSpot, or if you can't uh, set up your own sales engagement platform or do some of these basic things, you're going to be way behind your peers. And that is almost a prerequisite today in modern day B2B SaaS leadership in the sales world. Um, so I think everyone needs a little bit of a flavor of like operations in them. Mm-hmm. But if you take that a step further, you can come up with these ideas and experiments and contain them in really low risk ways and go test them on these regular basis. So if you think, uh, hey, if we start using this new message, uh, maybe we'll get better responses. Well, all right, go A-B test it. Go see if you, if you can't set up the test, you then have to start relying on your peers to help you support that. In a ideal utopian <laughs> a company, maybe that's the case. You have yeah. a really strong relationship with someone who can help you do that. But if you can do it yourself, you don't take up other resources. That could just become a, a project that you start working on on the side. And after three to five weeks, you know if it worked or not. And then you either take and run with it or you move on. I mean, for every successful project like the Autodial one, I must have had like 10 or 15 that were total failures. Oh, geez. Uh, Played around a little bit with like LinkedIn automation tools. That was bad, bad news bears. Wouldn't go down that road again. Yeah. Um, And a few of the other things, especially in emails and the email sequencing game, did a lot of experimentation there. But for every like five to 10 failures, there was like one really big hit and that was worth it. And the failures didn't really cost much. A little bit of time, a little bit of effort, maybe a few pissed off prospects. But other than that, not much. Awesome. Because it's, it's interesting, like you you definitely live one of the principles that I always teach my clients and what every SDR I've talked to is, you know, look, the tools are going to be there. The tech is really high tech and cool, mm-hmm. but you got to work the tools. That's right. You got to work the tools, you know? Like uh, one of the things that's like hard to teach people that are like new to tech sales is, hey, this uh, this didn't work the way that I thought it should. And they reach out to you and I say, did you do a Google? <laughs> did you uh did you look at the did you go to the help did, did you, you turn it on and off and on again did you log out and log back in <laughs> yeah hey uh when's the last time you turn off your laptop right because sometimes you go and they've got a hundred thousand tabs open and it's like slow and i'm like dude restart your laptop and call me back like, <laughs> there's so many little things but that, that's like um you know i, I think it's a theme that we're going to find the, the more people i talk to that have had a level of success like you have is it's not just that you showed up one day and someone said, Renan, here's the tools you're going to use. Here's how you use it. Go. And then you just crush your quota, 128% <laughs> P club. That's not, that's not what happened for you, right? No, not at all. There were a lot of missed quarters uh, before we started hitting in the success. I mean, going back to the Smartling days, we were missing quarter after quarter 
Actually, I think we were on monthly quotas. And then we finally started figuring some things out. Getting objection handling down was key to converting cold calls. In hindsight, that's like a big duh. Duh. (laughs) Documenting what was and wasn't working with objection handling and continuing to try as best as we can to collect that information was huge. Emailing, same thing. Adding other layers. Um, That was also the introduction to, I'll call it extreme personalization, like reading through 10Ks and like, your company is reporting that you're doing all these things. How are you planning to do that today? Um, that kind of worked, but it was a little bit too far. That was a good a good understanding of how far you can go with personalization too. But after we put two or three pieces together, we had a 15-month stint where we didn't miss a growing target. And it just kept going. And, and that's when we kind of hit stride. And I'm like, oh, this this is great. This is working. Um, there's a really important component too that people don't talk about a lot. So I talk a lot about the tech because it's fun. It's, it's easy to talk about that stuff, but you have to start with the people, right? Like if you're a leader, you, you just don't be a bad boss. You know, everyone falls into the traps of being scared by missing a number, uh, being afraid that if, if Jerry here takes off a week or, uh, you know, Glenn is out for a few days that my number's going to suffer. You get so much back by treating your people more than well, like exceptionally well in what they'll return to you um, by wanting to put in the extra effort. And even if they don't, it still always finds its way back to you. And I have yet to be upset by investing more time and energy into just trying to be the kind of boss that I would love to work for. Mm-hmm. When I was in that situation, there I'll never forget. There was one evening I spent with a thirty-minute one-on-one that turned into a three and a half hour, like heart to heart, with one of my reps who was, at the time, he was struggling, and it was strange because he's talented, he knows what to do, he's good at what he's doing, and so we were connecting. And it turned out he had all these personal things going on that I had no idea about. And I remember we were sitting in the office, Midtown Manhattan, New York City, at Security Scorecard, and we were we were just going on and on and on. Next thing I know, it was like 8.30 p.m. And my wife was like blown on my phone. Like, where are you? Are you okay? And we were just so locked in to talking about what was going on for him and how can he get uh, help and what can I do? And it it went really deep. And we even got into like talking about identity. Like, where does he get his identity from? And how does that stop him from being the person he wants to be? And after that talk, I mean, he was the number one performer until he got promoted to being an AE for every single month. And, uh, and even to this day, we we're still buddies, you know, we catch up from time to time and I'm excited to always see him continue to grow. That to me was the moment where I was like, this is more important than anything else. Like if you can't be that person for your team, you should question whether or not you really should be in that role. The greatest technology, the greatest process, the greatest training, none of it will matter if you can't first and foremost have your people know like you are there for them and you're going to make sure you take care of everything needed so that they can do their job as great as possible so they can live their lives as best as possible. If you take care of them, they'll take care of you in the number. There you go. Jeez. <laughs> Sorry about that, Rand. My close, talk is over. No, close the laptop, walk <laughs> away. Like that, that was the... That was the golden nugget, man. Yeah, that's, I'm, that's I'm incredible. Totally passionate about that side of it. I mean, when it comes down to it, like, what are you going to think about when you're 120 years old on your deathbed, looking back at your life and be like, wow, I really stood up that awesome tech that did some cool stuff and made us money. Or like, 
No, I really felt good about how I made other people feel. That's right. That's right. People forget what you do for them, but they'll never forget how you make them feel. Right. That's like the, sure. the famous quote. It, it's so interesting, right? Like I, I, in my career, it's in, I've had like uh, very interesting run-ins with leadership. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to be a little bit more of a maverick type myself. So it's hard for me to, I, I learned a lot of, you know, if, if you listen to the first podcast uh, in the, in our series here, I talk about hard to swallow pills, right? And I had to learn a lot of things the hardest way possible, right? How to not, you know, talk back and and how to, you know, hey, if you have an opinion on something, that's okay, but you don't have to talk about your opinion every single time. There's a time and a place, right? Um, But, uh, you know, it's really nice to hear that people still think of leadership that way, right? That it can be good. And think of it that way. I, I've worked with some people that that treat you know business relationships like they are in a vacuum somewhere, mm-hmm. where it's like people are not people when they're at work; they are What's machines to be pushed. I don't know. I don't work there anymore. <laughs> you know, and uh, I don't know really anybody that liked working for those types of people. But um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, investing in people that way. I mean, who who out there doesn't want to work for Ronan now? <laughs> I want to work for you. Like, come on, like hire me. Like, this is incredible. Um, I've said to, to a lot of people on my team before, like, if at any point you don't like working for the company, for me, or doing the role you're in, let me at least help you get to where you want to go. I've helped people quit. Uh, I've helped people, um, whether it was introducing them to someone else at a different company so they can go interview there. I've been uh, multiple recommendations and references for people who were like going to make my life harder by leaving, mm-hmm. but I knew they would be a better person for it. And it would mean a lot more to them to go try this opportunity elsewhere. Even though in the back of my mind, I'm always like, yeah, but can't I just like kind of tell them a little white lie about like staying and stock options and the excitement of the growth. And we're all on this IPO track. And don't you want to be able to tell that story? One of the worst lies that management likes to tell people at like fast growth startups is you need to be here because being at a company that goes IPO is the equivalent of going to Harvard for undergrad you know, in the right. tech world. If you yeah. you were at a company that IPO'd, oh, you, you can go anywhere with that. There's definitely going to be elements of truth to that, but it's used manipulatively. Is that a word? Yeah. It's yeah. used in such a like manipulation, I think, to get, to really be the wrong carrot to motivate people. The hardest but best way to motivate people is to learn about them yeah. and know what matters to them. Is it spending time with your family? Is it working on your hobby of building hot rods? Is it traveling? Is it just drinking awesome beer from like every microbrewery in the world? Yeah, I'm thinking of you there. (laughs) (laughs) I saw your collection. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then not using it as a manipulation. Right. Rather figuring out ways to make that congruent with their life so that they can live the kind of life they want to live while also performing at their best because their life is in a good place too. Jeez, man. Who would have thought that if you treat people right, <laughs> that they'll actually like working for you? I mean, incredible. Well, <laughs> is that time? Murray. <laughs> this is a uh, from home podcast in my home podcast studio with uh, my dog, Murray, saying hello here. Uh, cool. So I could talk to you probably for another hour and a half, but that wouldn't <laughs> suit our listenership. We want to keep this as short and sweet as we can. So I ask every podcast guest the same three questions All right. and I want to get into it here so we can finish because uh, 
we got to finish on that good note about people. That was an incredible wisdom, man. Thanks for sharing that. So um, first question for you. What's the biggest commission check you've ever gotten? Mm. Biggest commission check I've ever gotten? I think it was 32000 for a single month. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot That's for a month. Biggest. And that was obviously the best performance we had had the month before. End of a quarter, so all the accelerators were kicked in. Yeah. And we were overachieving on our goal. And um, also, this was actually, believe it or not, not managing a team of sellers. It was managing a team of, of SDRs. Yeah. And the SDRs had an extra kicker in there for the outbound closed one business they um, were able to bring in. They got a kicker and I got a small piece of that. And there was one really big deal in there that kind of helped. Yeah, that's that's a that's a big check, man. Yeah, thirty two k. Imagine making that every month. That'd be that'd be a good time. Exciting, cool. Well, the next question is, what you know, tech sales or not, what's been your favorite job you've ever had? Mm, that's not fair because I had a really awesome job, uh, delivering papers at fifteen years old at four thirty in the morning in the cold snow of Cleveland was just. No, I'm kidding. That was my worst job. I, like, <laughs> oh, I quit yeah. after a month. I, I mean, was like, what? <laughs> I mean, the story goes that like I just stopped delivering the paper, so they started stacking up in my closet, and one day my dad walks in, and all these papers come pouring on. He's like, you, need, you need to deliver these, and then properly quit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was my first lesson of like, okay, I understand what hard work feels like. Yeah. And didn't want that kind of hard work. <laughs> no, no. Uh, best job, I would say, I actually had an ice cream business. That was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, in college, I started a, like organic boutique ice cream business that delivered in the New York area to some of the like Columbia Barnard students um, in the Morningside Heights area of Manhattan. That was a lot of fun because we got to eat a lot of ice cream. And I also, I also really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed my last few stints, but like, Loved doing the SDR leadership role at Security Scorecard when we started growing a lot because that was a fun new challenge of like, how do I take this team from five to 15 to 25? Yeah. Wow. It's like, I like that ice cream answer. That's got to be the tastiest answer so far. <laughs> I like that. Cool, cool. So, you know, piggybacking off that idea of what your favorite job was, let's say money wasn't an issue. Mm. You didn't have to bring home money. And you and I both live in San Diego. We have to bring home money. Yeah. But let's say you didn't have to do that and everything and all the financial needs were taken care of. What would you do with your time? It's a great question. Uh, aside from hanging out with my kids a lot more, which I do a good amount of, but just more of it, I would spend a lot of time writing uh, probably fiction. A few different ideas. One would be uh, more adventure fiction. So think about like not as um, like totally made up as Lord of the Rings, but kind of in that genre of like going on an adventure with the character. I had this idea. I don't care if anyone steals it at this point (laughs) of uh, the Central Park Park Rangers. They live a double life and like during the day you see them like riding around Central Park, taking care of like the little things. But at night, like they're really controlling the globe's ecosystem. And then there's this like, there's the antagonist and the protagonist. And there's someone who wants to like mine the earth for precious minerals and destroy it. And then the park rangers have to save it. So I had this whole concept. It was going to be kind of like a young teenage uh, age book. Um, but that's probably what I would do. Do a lot of writing. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Who knew you liked fiction that much? I didn't. Yeah, I I found my way to it accidentally. I just took a 
fiction writing course once. And I was like, this is amazing and really tapped into it. Of course, looking back, it made a lot of sense. I have like six aunts and uncles who write professionally. Oh, really? Something about it might be in the DNA. Uh, I have an uncle who writes for the Boston Globe. Um, I have a lot of family who's just been, that's what they do. A lot of writing. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, fun fact, my mom was uh, the editor at the corporate newsletter at the company where she met my dad. So she's an editor by trade. Yeah. And uh, I have Grammarly on my laptop because I'm terrible at writing. <laughs> so I would not join you in that writing pursuit. But Renan, thank you for, uh, thanks for coming on the pod, man. This has been really interesting. A lot of incredible takeaways for people out there that they can learn and hopefully apply to their own careers. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, not just on your pod, but in your home. Awesome. There you so. go. Home podcast studio. Hopefully we're going to have a bunch of people here, but we'll see who in San Diego wants to come on down. <laughs> but thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, have a great rest of your week. You too. Take care. If this episode is interesting to you, please share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Tag me and I might just feature your post in an upcoming episode of the Sales Career Podcast. Or if you want to connect directly, go to hopconsultinggroup.com and we'll find a way to work together. Cheers.